0: really good to worship with you church. You know every, everything that we plan on Sunday morning, uh, my prayer every week is that it would serve to help you see Jesus for who he really is. So may that happen as I preach the word now. If you haven't been here in a while or, or this is your first Sunday, uh, you should know that we began a new sermon series from the book of 1 John last weekend called Assured of salvation. And the title for that series is actually taken from the book of First John itself, chapter 5 verse 13, where the apostle John declares, "I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life." That is John's purpose statement, if you would for the entire book. He's writing to Christians, note that. He's writing to those who who believe in the name of the Son of God, the name of Jesus, because there's something he wants them to experience. Right? There's something he wants them to possess, something he wants them to enjoy, because John perceives that it's something of tremendous spiritual value. What is that? What's assurance? Assurance. It's assurance. He wants them to notice, know, he wants them to know that they have eternal life. Think about that. I would argue that no gift in this world that you have received or could ever receive is more precious than the gift of life. Okay, think about that. No gift in this world that you have received or could ever receive is more precious than the gift of life. And we live in a world that by and large tells us believes, that life is something that we receive at birth and lose at death, right? The Bible tells us that that is not the way God created life to be. It's not, okay? Death might feel normal to us, but it's anything but normal in a world created by an eternal God, it's not normal. In the world God created, That the world all of us are living in, death is a violent intrusion. Okay? It's an evil curse. It's a consequence of rebellion in a moral universe. It shouldn't be here. And I'm reminded of that in a very personal way because this morning should have been the second birthday of my sister's little girl, Elise Noel. Um, A year ago, last March, Elise died from cancer. And everything within me and within my family screams it should not be that way. Right, we, we feel that, we, we feel that acutely, and I would argue that, that you feel that on some level, even if you're an atheist or an agnostic. I, I don't presume everybody I'm speaking to on a Sunday, by the way, is a Christian. I, I'm gonna speak honestly with you, and I expect you to be honest about who you are in the process, okay? And, and I would argue that even if you're an atheist or agnostic, There's something within all of us that cries out when a young child dies like that. That's wrong, right? It shouldn't be that way. And there's a reason we all feel that way. You you might not even believe in the existence of God, but there is a reason, friend, that you feel that way, okay? It's because every human being, including you, is created in the image of the eternal God. Every one of us. In the same way that God himself is eternal, so too is the life that he intended us to enjoy. It's a life that we've lost on account of our sin, but it's a life that God is offering us anew through the gospel of Jesus Christ. So, Jesus says in John 11, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who believes and lives in me shall never die. So what's he saying? Eternal death is what we deserve. But eternal life is what God mercifully extends to all who look to Christ for salvation. Now, here's the challenge. As a Christian, I forget just how valuable eternal life is. Why is that? Because in many respects, I am quite comfortable here. I think many of us would say the same thing. We don't think often about how precious eternal life is because if we're honest, we're largely content with this life. But we need to remember that this life is not the way it was meant to be. I don't care how comfortable your life is, friend. What you're experiencing right now is not the way life was meant to be. And there's a day coming when we're gonna experience life, if you're in Christ, as it was meant to be, right? So no more sin, no more sorrow, no more curse, and best of all, hear this, best of all, unbroken, unending fellowship with the lover of your soul. I think we need to recognize that eternal life ultimately is supremely valuable because knowing and seeing and dwelling with Jesus Christ is supremely satisfying. It's the presence of Christ in heaven that makes eternal life that valuable. And to the degree we lose sight of that, to the degree we lose sight of of the supremacy of Christ and the the immeasurable worth of eternal life with him, to that degree, we stop caring about the one thing that matters most in this life as a result. What's that? The authenticity of your faith. Why why is authentic faith so important? Think about that. Why is authentic faith important? so important. It's because your eternal life depends on it. That's why. But if eternal life isn't valuable to you because Christ and knowing him is not satisfying to you, then you won't care about eternal life and you really won't care about the authenticity of your faith. But friend, you should. Because Jesus is infinitely satisfying which makes eternal life of immeasurable worth. And therefore you should care very much about the authenticity of your faith. Nothing, absolutely nothing, I'm not exaggerating, is more important than knowing if you have eternal life. Nothing. God wants you to know. God wants you to be assured. God wants you to live with the kind of strength for today that's rooted in bright hope for tomorrow. And that's what makes First John such a gift. Okay, that's why this book is a gift. To meditate on these chapters is to have our false assurance exposed and our genuine assurance strengthened. That's the goal, remember, I write to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. John wants to expose our false assurance of salvation and strengthen genuine assurance. But interestingly enough, he doesn't begin this exploration, this test of the authenticity of our faith, he doesn't begin that by talking about us. He doesn't. Look at 1 John 1, verse 5. He doesn't start with who you are or I am. Because authentic faith might be the the finish line, the goal of writing this book for John. But it's not the starting line. Truth be told, it, it can't be. Listen, because the authenticity of our faith depends entirely on the authenticity of who or what we are trusting in. Does that make sense? The authenticity of your faith depends entirely, at the end of the day, on the authenticity of who or what you're trusting in. And John, John wants our faith to be authentic. So here's an illustration for you. Imagine my two-year-old Tyler believes I'm a superhero. I, I like to think he does. You know, as dad, there's, there's nothing too difficult for dad. Right? Dad's, dad's a superhero. Well, let's just say he believes that, okay? How would you describe his faith? Well, I would say it's sincere. Points for sincerity, right? He really does believe that daddy is a superhero that nothing is too hard for dad, okay? But his faith isn't authentic. Why not? Because I'm not a superhero, (laughs) right? In other words, his faith doesn't correspond to reality. You know that, not every two year old does. But the point, friend, is that that John wants our faith to be authentic such that what we believe about God corresponds to who he actually is. Do you realize how hard that is sometimes? That, That what we individually or even corporately believe about God may or may not in fact correspond to who he actually is. And when that's the case, our faith It's not authentic. It's not authentic. So so in verse five, John John makes a statement about the Lord. Look with me there. A statement about the Lord, about who God is, that's gonna be the foundation for the entire rest of this book. And yes, that's why I'm lingering on this point, okay? What does John say? This is the message we have heard from him and proclaimed to you. Drum roll. What is it, John? That God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. I love how a one man says, John's frame of reference in the epistle is not dominated, first of all, by his teaching, his commands, or his encouragement to love or even the occasions that call all these forth, it is dominated rather by his vision of God. Do you see that? Where John begins when he wants to help us test the authenticity of our faith, your faith, friend, he doesn't begin with you. He begins with God, a vision of God. And and the very first and most important thing we have to learn about God if we are to experience the blessing of assurance is this, okay? This is point one in the sermon this morning. What's what's the first and most important thing we have to learn about God if we're going to experience the blessing of assurance? Point number one, God is the arbiter of what is true and right. He's the arbiter of what's true and right. So, So when John says God is light, okay, He's adding his voice to a chorus of Old Testament voices. He, he's joining in the song that uses the same metaphor to tell us something about who God is. So listen to this, Psalm 27, one, the Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? Psalm 36, for with you is the fountain of life. In your light do we see light. Or Psalm 104, oh Lord my God, you are very great. You are clothed with splendor and majesty, covering yourself with light as with a garment. And the same pattern continues in the New Testament, okay? This just keeps getting better. Jesus says, John 8, I am what? I am the light of the world. I'm the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Or John 12, I have come into the world as light, Jesus says, so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. Or 1 Timothy 6, Paul speaking of Christ, he is the blessed and only sovereign, the king of kings and lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light. it's, it's, It's not an odd metaphor for scripture to use of the Lord. Though it is a metaphor we don't often use to describe one another. Right? So to speak of God as light, putting all that together, is, is to declare that God is transcendent and holy, and he's a God who saves us by revealing all that is true and right. First and foremost, the worth of his son in the good news of the gospel. See, that's, that's the Full picture, that, that's what John's tapping into when he says God is light. But I also think he has something even more specific in view here. If that's, if that's all that the Bible's getting at when it says God is light, well, John, John's including that, but, but I think he's saying something even more specific in verse five, okay? In context here, notice he doesn't just say God is light. He says what? God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. You know, in 1 John, darkness is a metaphor for wickedness, for, for evil, for, for sin. So to say God is light and in him is no darkness at all is to say specifically that God is pure, God is holy, and God is unstained by sin. That's what he's asserting, but, but notice here, please notice this: that that's not because that's not because God's attitudes or actions line up with some standard of true, right, holy outside of Himself. Okay, what, what is John saying? that God corresponds to the light or God points to the light or God reflects the light as if the standard of all that's true and right is somewhere out here. No, he doesn't say that. What does he say? God, ontologically, in his essence, God is light. He is light. He is the standard. He is righteousness. Every aspect of, of his nature, his attitudes, his actions, it's in keeping with his eternally perfect character. What does that mean practically? God's motives are never mixed. Think about that. His actions are always right. God is not torn like we are between obedience and disobedience. His his righteousness is spotless and it's always been that way. We don't have an experiential category for that. Do you realize that? There's no way that any one of us could stand up this morning starting with me and say I am light and in me is no darkness at all, right? We we can't say that. Why why not? Because I get angry. You know, the, the guy who gets loud on stage on Sunday has an ability to get loud at home, <laughs> right? I get angry. I get I get impatient all, all too often. I'm I'm selfish. I'm self-centered. I'm arrogant. I I sin. I I choose darkness. Even though I know it's wrong, God never, ever does that. He never does that. He never sins. Think about that. He only does what is true and right because He is the sole arbiter of what is true and right, and he always thinks and acts in in keeping with his perfect character. So, all that is in keeping with his perfect character is light, is light. All that is not in keeping with his perfect character is darkness. So just to illustrate this, I wonder if how many of you know what a second actually is. Does anybody actually know what a second is? Yeah. Okay, well, you know, I'm a pastor and so I'm not a physicist. So for me, a second is well, it's the time between consecutive psh, psh, on my wall clock, right? That's what a second is. Well well, actually it's not. According to the International Bureau of Weights and Measures, a second is actually the duration of 9,192,631,770 periods of the radiation corresponding to the transition between two hyperfine levels of the ground state of a cesium-133 atom. True story, okay? How about a kilogram? Mass. There's no way I'm gonna try that one, right? Well, what's a kilogram, okay? Well, it's a unit of mass equal to the mass of, ready, the international prototype of the kilogram, okay? Which is what? Well, it's a small cylinder of platinum-iridium alloy kept in a high-security vault for the last 120-some years outside of Paris. (laughs) True story, okay? Why do I mention those things beyond that sort of my nerd moment on stage? Okay, why, why do I mention that? Well, it's because we have a reliable standard, even if we don't understand it, for what a second is. We, we have a reliable standard for what a kilogram is. Friend, we can be far, far, far more certain about what is spiritually true and spiritually false. What is morally right and what is morally wrong, why? Because the biblical starting point for human ethics is not what seems right or seems wrong to us. It's what God has told us is in keeping or not in keeping with his eternally perfect character. Okay, he's, he's the standard. God is the standard of what is right, what is wrong, what is wise, what is unwise, what is good, what is bad. Okay, so I'd say it this way. Biblical morality, what is true and right, is neither a democratic product, a cultural construct, or an individual decision. It is an indelible and unchanging expression of the eternal character of the living God. That is biblical morality. It's not what you think is right. It's not what you feel is right. It's not what everybody around you says is right. It is what is in keeping or not in keeping with the eternal character of the living God. And evaluating, please hear this, evaluating the authenticity of your faith starts with understanding the object of your faith. And the first and most important thing John says about the Lord is that God is light, right? Which means he's the sole arbiter of what is true and right. So, so friend, let me, I wanna challenge you very directly here, okay? What standard are you using to determine in your life what is right and what is wrong how are you evaluating the choices that you are making what's wise what's unwise what is true what is false every one of us has some sort of grid that we're using to do that even if it's nothing more subject you know it's entirely subjective well what's true is whatever feels true or what's right is whatever a majority of people around me say is right. Okay. That is not biblical. It's not biblical. What makes something right is if it's in keeping with the character of God as revealed in the word of God. Psalm 19, the law of the Lord is what? Perfect. Why? Because God's perfect. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. By them is your servant warned. In keeping them, there is great reward. Okay, why is the word of God all those things? Why is it perfect and sure and right and worthy and enlightening? This word. Because that's who God is. It reflects his eternally perfect character. It's the basis for our morality, for what is true and false and right and wrong, okay? Authentic faith, point one, begins with a humble recognition that God, God alone, is the sole arbiter of what is true and right. Point number two, walking with God, that God, means walking in the light, Okay, look at, look at verse six, look at verse six, and verse seven here. If you notice this, as Beth was reading, John, John's contrasting two different groups of people. Okay, each of them respond to the truth, God is light, in different ways. So what's the first group say? The first group says, of course I have fellowship with God. I, I believe he exists, I, I definitely, I consider myself a spiritual person, and, and God loves everyone, so, so yeah, um, sure, I'm a Christian. Well, there's a problem with that statement. Because for the first group here, they're not walking in light, they're walking in darkness. Their, their life doesn't reveal a pattern of obedience to the word of God, it reveals a pattern of, of disobedience, of doing whatever seems or feels right to them instead of what God says is true or right. Okay, by the way, that's the definition of sin. What's sin? What's not this nebulous bad guy in the closet that jumps out and grabs us on really bad days, okay? It's, it's anything in our nature, our actions, our attitudes, that doesn't correspond to the perfect character of God. And that's, that's what characterizes this first group, okay? They're doing what they want to do instead of what God tells them to do. Now, let's just stop for a moment and be honest, okay? If someone came up to you on the street and said, excuse me, are you walking in darkness? What would you think? Well, what would you say? Yeah, I think, I think some of us would say, well, well, no way. No way. Maybe a lot of us would say that. No way. I mean, depressed, maybe. Uh, living in a pattern of rebellion against the word of God. Um, dude, that sounds a little harsh. I don't, I don't think so. I'm not a bad person if that's what you mean. Well, here's the problem with that answer, okay? If we say we have fellowship with him or we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. Why not? Why not? Because walking in darkness isn't about being a bad person compared to other people around you. Please hear that okay? We we like to think that way. We like to flatter ourselves. We, We like to define darkness. We're so good at this. We never even have to be trained. We just do it. We're so good at defining darkness or sin as everything those people are doing, not me. It's always those people. Friend, that's a lie. That's a lie, okay? Walking in darkness is failing to conform an act, attitude, or nature to the holiness of God. God determines what is light and darkness, what is right and wrong, not the people around you. And and if you claim to be a Christian, to have fellowship with a God who is light while you're living in darkness, listen, you're both telling a lie and living a lie. Okay, why are you telling a lie? Well, because you're saying that you and God are able to have fellowship despite the fact that you're disobeying his word. And and you're living a lie, you're not practicing the truth because the choices you're making are the opposite of the words you're speaking. In other words, you're a hypocrite. Because a God who is light cannot have fellowship, cannot have personal communion with someone who's walking in darkness. And if you think that, you are deceived. And again, to those of you who are not believers, I just feel like I'd be remiss to not acknowledge that from my perspective, many times, professing non-Christians often live with more personal integrity than Christians. Why do I say that? Well, because they make no claim to have fellowship with God. And their life reveals the lack. At least they're honest. But we claim to have fellowship with God, but sometimes our life looks just like theirs. And friend, if that's, if that's you, know this, you're, you're living a lie. And you need the word of God in verse 6 to shatter your illusion, to claim to have fellowship with God while you are not living in submission to his word. is to claim a spiritual and moral high ground that doesn't exist. It doesn't exist. You can't be right with God if you're defying his will. Why? Because walking with God always means walking in the light. Look at verse seven. Look at verse seven. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, in other words, if if the pattern of our words, our thoughts, our deeds is is progressive conformity to the character of God, then, then what's true? What's true? We have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. When I read those words, studied them this week, I was surprised Okay, let me tell you why, all right? Track with me here. What would you expect God to say through John? If we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with who? With God, right? That's what you would expect him to say in verse seven, but that's, that's not what he says. He says if we walk in the light, we have fellowship with who? One another. Okay, verse six, he's talking about fellowship with God, and then right when you expect him to say, fellowship with God again, He doesn't. (laughs) He says fellowship with one another. What's up with that? Well, he's making an important point. You can't separate fellowship with God from fellowship with one another, with his people, okay? More specifically, genuine fellowship with one another. Authentic community, if you would, in the church. That's always a product of a shared devotion to living for God. Okay? Okay? Biblical community, please hear this, biblical community is not a bunch of people sitting around and empathizing with one another about how broken and messed up and sorry they are. That may feel real, that is not biblical community. Biblical community is humbly recognizing our brokenness, confessing our sinfulness, and then linking arms with each other to help one another follow Jesus in every area of life. That's what biblical community is, okay? In other words, Kingsway, we're not not bound together merely by our common need for a savior. We're bound together by our shared pursuit of a life that is worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ, And what does that gospel do? It meets us at the point of our need and it never leaves us there. Yes, it meets us at our need and we all have similar needs, but that gospel of Jesus Christ, the power of God, it never leaves us there. It makes us holy. Walking in the light is the key to experiencing fellowship with one another. So again, very practically, let me just speak to some of you, maybe listening to me, if, if, you're feeling, if you're feeling disconnected from Christian community, if you don't feel particularly close to people who know the Lord, if you don't feel like showing up on, on Sunday morning anymore, well then, you have to be honest and wrestle with this question. Could it be that it's not because there's a problem with all the Christians around could it be that I, I feel that disconnect because I'm not walking in the light anymore? Maybe I used to, but, but now the pattern of my life, I'm, I'm really doing what I want to do. I'm walking in darkness. If you're not walking in the light, you, sh- you should still be loved by the church if you have the humility to receive it, but you will never feel at home in the church because we're not living for the same thing. You're not living for the Lord. And so I warn you, friend, if you, if you recognize you have a waning desire to spend time with genuine Christians who are passionate about Jesus, that's a good indication that you might be falling away from God. Hebrews 10, let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. Not neglecting to meet together, notice that, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Why? For if we go on sinning deliberately, walking in darkness, after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment. Walking with God, point number two, means walking in the light, and walking in the light is what binds us together as the people of God. Now now listen, that's not to say that our unity is found or founded, grounded, in our common pursuit of holiness, okay? Our unity is found in the Lord who has united us in all our differences, if you're a believer, to Jesus Christ. But here's the problem. If you're not having been united to Christ, linking arms with all the other people who've been united to Christ and fighting to pursue holiness, then you shouldn't have any confidence that you've been united to Christ in the first place. Following Jesus, walking the light, is one of the surest signs that you've been united to Christ. So so let me just give you a very, very practical example here, okay? Racial reconciliation is a hot, topic right now. The the issue, fair to say, is as old as sin. But it's receiving more attention in in recent years. And I think it's easy for churches, including our church, to, to say things like, praise God that the gospel unites black and white believers at the foot of the cross, praise God for that. And then we have no clue what racial reconciliation looks like after that. You know, so what do we do? The next time, well, praise God, we've been united at the foot of the cross. Well, Well, yes, we have. And praise God we have. But practically, how does that reconciliation between black and white, for example, work itself out in the church? Well, friends, here's where I would direct your attention to 1 John 1, verse seven. You, you wanna know how ra- racial reconciliation, in part, works itself out in the church? Which what happens when all of us redouble our efforts to fight for holiness. Okay, walk in the light. If you want to deepen Transcultural unity in this church, one of the most important things you can do is say to a brother or sister who looks different from you, would you join me in helping me to follow Jesus? There's something powerful that happens when when a white man has coffee with a black man and says, brother, would you help me be a faithful husband? Or a faithful dad? Or a faithful employee? When, when we're praying together, when we're fighting against sin together, when we're fighting for holiness together, that's when reconciliation actually happens in the church. What Jesus begins, he continues as we fight to be more and more like him. Walking with God means walking in the light. And when we walk in the light, we don't just have fellowship with God, we have fellowship with one another. Okay, But, but that's not the only thing that happens when we're walking in the light. Look, look back at the end of verse 7. This is the last point. God is the sole arbiter of what is true and right. Walking in the light means walking with God. Point number three, to walk in the light is to be progressively cleansed from sin. Okay, so if you're a Christian and you've been listening to everything I've said thus far, I imagine that part of you is painfully aware of areas in your life where you are struggling to walk in the light. Okay, I just, I presume that. Maybe part of you is even wondering, how can I be assured of salvation when the spiritual landscape of my life has so many corners in it, caves in it that are still darkness? Sin. Well friend, to you I would say two things. Two things, okay? First, The very fact that you're concerned about whether you're walking in the light or not is a really encouraging sign that your faith is genuine. Okay, it's not a guarantee, but it's a really encouraging sign, all right? Second, take heart in knowing that your heavenly Father is all too aware that you can't cleanse yourself from sin. (laughs) He, He knows you can't. He knows you better than you know yourself. And better yet, he he has, he is, and and he will continue to cleanse you from sin until the day he brings you home. Why? Why? Well, because the moment you become a Christian, the the moment you repent of your sins, trust Jesus as Lord and Savior, his blood cleanses you from the guilt of sin and the enslaving power of sin. We're gonna look more next Sunday about, about exactly how that happens, but we know all too well, do we not, But though that's true, even as a Christian, the presence of sin remains. And in my experience, the longer you endure in walking in the light, the more aware and sensitive you become to all the remaining areas in your life where you still perceive darkness. That's part of the process. So what do we do? I mean, do we we despair of of ever really walking in the light? (laughs) completely and, and abandon hope of assurance. No, we don't do that. We take heart that the same blood of Christ that cleansed you on the day you were saved is the same blood of Christ that's going to keep on cleansing you till the day you see him. That, that's our confidence. That's, that's where we go with that awareness, okay? In fact, it's in the very process of fighting. To say no to sin and yes to godliness that we experience the power of his cleansing blood. Don't don't think, don't think that somehow we're cleansed from sin and then we go on to, to bigger and better things like walking in the light. It's not true. To walk in the light is to allow Jesus to cleanse you from sin every day through the power of his blood. So that you're progressively conformed into his image. So, so in one sense, we're, we're if, as it were, we're definitively sanctified, cleansed the moment we become a Christian. But in another sense, we're progressively sanctified or cleansed all throughout the rest of our life. So walking in the light isn't about practicing perfection. It's about growing in godliness. And as we, we choose to look to that cleansing blood of Christ every day of our lives, it does real work in us. You know, I don't think we, we think very carefully as Christians sometimes about exactly how is it that the blood of Christ, as John says in verse seven, cleanses us from all sin. How does that happen? I'm gonna give you 13 examples. <laughs> Real quick. Ready? We're gonna project these, and I'm gonna put these on the blog. This is the fruit of my study this week. And I was amazed, amazed. This is just a sampling. How how does the blood of Christ practically cleanse us from sin, okay? One, the blood of Jesus teaches us that we are not our own. God owns your body, not you, because he bought you with a price. 1 Corinthians 6. The blood of Jesus assures us of our worth in God's sight as individuals and as a church and, and motivates us to value and care for one another as God values and cares for us. Acts 20 The blood of Jesus enables us to experience peace in the midst of the most difficult situations, confident that the Lord is near, Ephesians 2. The blood of Jesus weans our affections away from loving the pleasures of this world and back to loving God, Hebrews 9. The blood of Jesus frees us to bring our darkest secrets into the light, confident that they too can be forgiven, Hebrews 10. The blood of Jesus strengthens our communion with the Father. John 6, the blood of Jesus instructs us in the kind of sacrifices we must be willing to make for the sake of pleasing the Lord. Hebrews 12, the blood of Jesus comforts us with a promise that God understands all our sorrows. Hebrews 13, the blood of Jesus renews our confidence that the power of God is greater than the power of sin. Revelation 1, The blood of Jesus empowers us to work for unity in the church, Revelation 5. The blood of Jesus proves that we can trust God to bring justice to pass, Romans 3. The blood of Jesus quiets our hearts with an assurance of the Father's love, Romans 8. And the blood of Jesus guarantees our joy in the new heavens and the new earth. Friends, praise God for the blood of Jesus Christ. Praise God for that. Amen. God is the sole arbiter of what is true and right. Walking with God means walking in the light. But walking in the light doesn't mean perfection. It means that the blood of Jesus Christ is progressively cleansing us in all those ways. And that was just a sample. It's ultimately a work you can't do for yourself, right? You can't cleanse yourself from sin, and yet you have a critical role to play in the process. Cleansing from sin through the blood of Christ isn't automatic. We have to choose to walk in the light instead of walking in darkness. We have to fight for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord, but our confidence is in the promise of God and the power of God. Why, because what does Paul say? Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Why? Because it's God who works in you. So I charge you, Kingsway. 2 Corinthians 7 1. Since we have these promises, and I just read 13 of them. Let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of the Lord. Okay? Let's do that together. Evaluating the authenticity of our faith starts with understanding the object of our faith. And the first and most important thing John says is that God is light. He's he's the arbiter of what's true and right. Okay, that means walking with God means walking in the light, which means we're progressively being cleansed from sin as we submit to the power of Jesus. That is a battle worth fighting for because your eternal life is on the line. That's what we saw at the very beginning. And so given the stakes, the Lord's exhortation to us this morning is very simple. Church, walk in the light. Don't walk in darkness. And watch as you do that, the blood of Jesus Christ cleanse you from all sin. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you so much that there is power in your blood. Power in your blood. And Father, I ask that this morning you would give us courage to come to you with every corner of our heart where sin and darkness remains and bring it to you and watch you cleanse us through your blood. Lord, renew our courage to fight for what is right, but locate our confidence in your power and your promises. Amen.